This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. A while back, I was sitting at the airport waiting for my flight when I was approached by a woman around my age asking if she could come up and say hello. She was dressed in her airline uniform and her coworkers came up behind her to explain that she was very nervous and that they were there for moral support. The conversation quickly turned into what I expected was coming next. She was a big fan of the whole Vampire Diaries world. She had seen every episode of the Vampire Diaries the originals, and legacies. Well, I was prepared with my stock answers for her stock fandom questions. What did the blood taste like? Like a gross, thick sugar syrup. Are Ian Summerholder's eyes that gorgeous in real life? Oh, yep, you bet. But then she threw me a curveball. She started to cry. Now, if you've seen the news at all lately... It is not a good look when a traveler is making anyone who works for an airline cry in the middle of their shift. Couple that with my discomfort in being on the receiving end of that kind of overwhelming emotion and I suddenly felt the urge to shut it down. Please don't cry. Nope, it's okay. I loved the show too. I too am a TV watcher, so I get it. I feel the same way about the Bravo franchises. She took a breath to collect herself. You don't understand, she said. I watched the show when I was going through my divorce. She began to explain how watching Caroline Forbes, the character that I played, grow into who she was meant to become as a person and, yes, even as a vampire, meant something to her. Caroline Forbes learning how to move through her tragedies encouraged this woman 
to look at the road ahead of her and realize that she could do the same. She could take on the unexpected storylines she was dealt with in her life and be the badass vampire in her own storyline. Suddenly, I was the one fighting off tears, which she tried to dispel only for me to explain that I know how she felt. How as dumb as it may be, binge-watching Housewives shows with a warm blanket has been shockingly therapeutic in ways I did not expect. Now, I don't know if I'm necessarily getting the same life lessons that she got from Caroline Forbes and all of the inhabitants of Mystic Falls, but the Bravo Network has given me somewhere reliable I can go when it all just feels too much and I need to give myself a break. I've always loved TV. I am not a movie buff. Please don't ever pick me for your bar trivia team if the category of the night is film. But TV, I'm your girl. TV was a big part of my adolescence. I loved growing up with the kids on 7th Heaven, falling in love alongside Joey with Pacey Witter on Dawson's Creek, hanging out with all of my favorite families on Friday nights like the Winslows and hoping that one day I'd have a teacher who cared like Mr. Feeney. I considered these shows and characters to be my friends in a way. I guess it's not that far of a stretch that in a year like the one I've had, I found myself turning to television to hang out with at night when I just couldn't sleep. I never thought I would grow up to be an actress, especially one lucky enough to win the TV show Lottery. It's been an interesting experience as someone who is such a fan of TV and TV characters to find themselves on the receiving end of a fandom. But lately, my favorite part has been the conversations I've had with strangers all over the world relating about deeply personal things that are beautiful and complicated and so very human, all because I played a vampire on TV. Today's guest is not only a fan of The Vampire Diaries, she is also a movement lawyer, political commentator, and writer in New York City. Olami Aluren is Bahamian-Nigerian and was born and raised in Nassau, where she lived until she moved to America in 2008. After getting her law degree, Aluren became a public defender at the Legal Aid Society in New York, where she represents people who cannot afford representation, who unfortunately and uncoincidentally make up the vast majority of the people churned through the criminal system. Olaimi answers all of my questions about the abolition movement, and I answer all of her burning Vampire Diaries questions, including some behind-the-scenes tea about that infamous tree-kissing Klaus and Caroline scene. So stay tuned. We've got a great conversation for you. First, I've always been curious, do you hear from John Oliver's team before you just like end up no. on John Oliver? No, no freaking way. I had no idea. I was sitting down preparing for, for my show for the next, actually, I lie. I was watching House of Dragons, doing all my commentary <laughs> on that. <laughs> I was in the house, big calling Viserys Beetlejuice. And then suddenly they start getting tweets at me like, Alami's on John. Congratulations, you and John. I was like, excuse me, who? And I was like, I was not anywhere. I'm thinking they mixed me up with somebody giving me some kind of congratulations for people. And then I look and I was like, oh, wow. No idea. Not even the kind, not even a faintest, the faintest of clues. They said nothing to me. That is wild. And, um, and just for anyone that hasn't seen this clip, I think it's very significant because I just watching you on Rising, 
Yeah. Um, I would imagine you have a lot of deep breaths before you go into <laughs> filming, um, but you you are able to get your point across in such a cool, cl- calm, collected way, which I think yeah. can is not um, as common right now, currently in the political yeah. sphere of the world. Yeah. So um, when you are going into sit down at that table on rising, is there anything that you kind of tell yourself before you um, begin? Yeah. Just really, I mean, th- these aren't just like, here's yeah. the pop culture news of what's going on in the world. Here's what, you know, so-and-so wore on the red carpet. I mean, th- and this yeah. isn't even just political fluff. These are yeah. very big stories and topics yeah. and heated conversations that you're having. Yeah, I think, um, honestly, I'm a public defender, so I'm so used to being in an adversarial environment, just like a literal adversarial environment where everyone's against me. It's usually the prosecutor or the judge or the prosecutor uh, or the court officers. And they have so much more power than like Robbie on rising and the people on rising, right? So it's it's actually, I know like for everybody else, when you consider what your day-to-day environment is, I'm like, it's a chiller environment than my main job. So I look at it like that. So one, it's, it's a little bit chill, but two, I remind myself, there's nothing you can say in one conversation that's going to make anybody get rid of their entire worldview. Like, I don't go into it with the approach that I need to convince Robbie or whomever else to, like, become an abolitionist with me or get on my agenda of things. I look at it like this is an opportunity to get this information out to the public. You know what I mean? In this response, like, I'm not really trying to convince Robbie. So I don't get, you know, my heart and my feelings aren't really in it for that degree. It's like, all right. I'm here to to see how people who are listening to it or maybe haven't heard either one of our positions or how one would respond to it can hear that. So I approach it from from that perspective and not really, I'm not vested in it. You know, it's not really a me versus Robbie to me. It's like, all right, I'm here to respond to this. Because in real life, I wouldn't even have those conversations. <laughs> in, in real life, my mom, anytime she watches it, she goes, why can't I get this chill alive and this reasonable alive and just having to call my mommy? So such a foolishness. <laughs> so it's for there, it's for the environment so people can get the info. Do you talk about politics with your family? All day. Me and my, my, me and my mommy. Yes. All, my mommy. First of all, my mommy is she just wants to be a contrarian because I always call her my moderate example of the moderate. I've got to I've got to wear down. But she's really not that moderate. She just becomes a moderate to, to be my adversary. It's just like <laughs> she'll see me on the news. She's saying she she 100 percent fostered the environment for me to be who I am. Then she'll see me on the news and be like, why can't you leave Nancy Pelosi alone? Why do you have to talk about Eric Adams all the time? Leave my Democrats alone. And I'm like, mommy, you don't even live in America. You can't, like, you can't vote. You don't live here. How are they your Democrats? So yes, we do talk politics all day. Where's your mom? In the Bahamas where I was born and raised. Oh my, and you moved into the state, you moved to the States in 2008. Yes. And what, I just would love to know the route of making the decision to not only go into law, but to go into becoming a public defender. Yes. Um, I pretend you're talking to a child because I didn't even apply to college. So for me, the whole like college sphere and even how you go into law school and then determining like what type of law you're going to do is completely yeah. foreign to me. Did you know you wanted to move to the States to become a, you wanted to go into law? Yes, absolutely. My um, my Grammy told me I was going to be a lawyer since I was a little kid. She saw that for me, like <laughs> immediately out the game. I think I used to walk around our house with a clipboard, with a to-do list, real intense agenda, shows we got to watch what we got to do. And my Grammy's like, lawyer. And so I always knew that was going to be the case. And then in when I was 14, I convinced my parents I wanted to move to America. That The answer to why my, my child teen self was hell-bent on America, I don't know. 
But I wanted I wanted to move to America. And when I looked into it immigration wise, it was like it would be easier if I entered the schooling system earlier to become a lawyer there. So did a, everything in my house is very presentation. You've got to convince my parents of everything. So I did a presentation. This is why I sent me to America. My daddy was like, no. My mommy was like, yes, actually. And she sent me. Uh, so she sent me and my daddy, he was a little groom for like a year and he got accustomed and afterwards my sisters followed. But so originally I knew lawyer and then when I got to college, I thought I was going to be actually maybe like a divorce lawyer for, for the drama. I was like, ooh. At the time I was like, that'll be salacious. And then what happened was I was writing, it's what I studied, like race and the criminal system and, and uh, systemic racism and discrimination. That was my area of focus academically. And I was writing a thesis called Colored Bodies Matter, Our Relationship Between um, Power power and Our Bodies. And my thesis advisor, Dr. Kathleen Sullivan, wonderful woman, called me a gap scholar, which is um, an academic term that means it's somebody who points out the problems in academia. Like they, pro they, they point out the gaps. They don't necessarily have solutions, but they point out the issue. And that's a necessary purpose. But at the time, I remember the Ferguson protests were going on. And I remember feeling like, you know what? The criminal system is disproportionately, Black people are disproportionately represented. But when it comes to legal representation, we are 5% of attorneys. And I didn't feel like it was sufficient to be a Black person that becomes a lawyer and didn't do anything that directly served the community. So in that moment, I was a public defender. That's what it is. And then just for anyone that doesn't really understand what a public defender is. Yes. A public defender is, uh, first of all, we're the only constitutionally mandated attorneys, but public defenders represent poor people who can't afford legal representation, which is unfortunately the vast majority of our legal system. So if you are arrested for and accused of any crime and you can't afford representation, the court appoints a lawyer to you and that would be me. <laughs> Ooh, and day one of being a public defender, did you know what you were walking into? And, and even when you were moving from the Bahamas to the States and going to law school, and as you began your academic journey into not only law, but also learning about the law within the United States, were there things that surprised you or did you know what you were walking into? Oh, I knew nothing. So when I came, I came, I came when I was 14. So I didn't come first. Oh, you I were 14. I was 14. And my parents, like my family still lives in the Bahamas. So I, did, I came alone. So no, I knew nothing. I was not prepared at all for America on any level. I want to say, um, just at all. I, I just didn't know. I feel like even even the dynamic of racism by itself, without even recognizing the criminal system or anything like that, that was pretty unfamiliar to me, too, because the Bahamas is a black majority country. So everybody, the majority, we're all, you know, we don't have that yeah. same system. We don't have um, a massive police state or any of those things. So, you know, I get to America and all of a sudden people are, you know, they stereotype me, but I don't even know the stereotypes. I can't even put it together. I don't know what anyone's saying to me. Like, I, I remember once, I think one of the first stereotypes someone presented to me was something like um, about black people not being able to swim. I'm from an island. We can all swim. <laughs> like, so I'm just like, I can't even figure it out. Like they're being racist. They're just not making sense to me. So it's like years and years of like, what's going on? What is everybody talking about? And I went out for context. So the first year in America, I was in Florida. Then I went to West Virginia for boarding school. So I was in West Virginia by myself and I was the only black girl in my entire class. And then I went to college in Ohio. Um, so it was a process. And then, yeah. but by the time I became a PD on the first day, I will tell you what is surprising about it was realizing it's not academic in the sense. I think when you study racism and you study the criminal system, there's so much, we are constantly being bombarded with information and the reality of how discriminatory our criminal system is. But when a system is taught to you as a justice system, you have faith in it, that that's what it does. And you think all these, um, injustices are outliers or you think it's something you have to parse out or you have to like statistically find. I was not prepared to walk in the court and it be as blatantly 
discriminatory as it is. I think that was the thing that surprised me. Like, oh, this isn't something I got to like look for. It's right there. So. Was there a point where that deterred you? I Or were no. did you, were you, I mean, I would imagine a lot of feelings came from that experience. Um, yeah. It, it, honestly, no. It made me just recognize how necessary of a function um, the work that I have to do is necessary. I think the first time I really, so in arraignments, arraignments is when, when you're, uh, when you get bail, when you're first arrested of a arrested and charged with a crime, you wait to get in front of the judge to hopefully get bail. So we have a bunch of cases. And I remember I had a black guy that was accused of having a blunt and they asked same prosecutor, same judge back to back. This is back to back. My, my pile of cases, the prosecutor asked for like thousands of dollars bail on this, on this black guy for the blunt. Immediately after I represented a white guy that was found with a bag of drugs and they consented to his release. And I remember looking around like, is anyone else seeing this? Yeah, you're not gonna, gonna like, you're not upside you're, down. You're just gonna do that. That is the canist. That is exactly at the amount of times I said, I feel like I'm in the upside down. I'm looking around like eleven. Like, oh what's God. going on? Yeah, where is yeah. happening? Yeah. So for me, I think, and I think that like kind of helps with my work and everything I do with advocacy because I'm like, this is happening regardless of you know how who's seeing it, how we're responding to it, who is the person I'm um, I'm conversing with. This is the system. So I actually prefer, even if it's adversarial out in the world, or to 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 advocate for these things or make it known to people. That's better than when I'm in court just wishing somebody could see what what I'm seeing and I'm looking around like, and you can't tell. And you know what I mean. You're in court. They have it set up. You. It's not a coincidence that the fact, despite the fact that court uh, criminal courtrooms are open to the public, you're not allowed to record or take pictures or do anything because the average person cannot go sit in courts, criminal courts. They don't have a criminal case. Why would they be in court just sitting down watching the proceedings to know what the system works like? But we could show them theoretically, but they won't let you. And why is that? So that's what most of court is, is you as the defense attorney, knowing that if you could talk to the larger public, a lot of people would feel what you feel, but you're by yourself. So you're just still like, somebody hear this like what year did you start where you were in the courtroom you were done with school and you were in the rhythm 2018 2018, yes are there in especially within that first year as you were finding your own footing within you know public defense law what and and if I miss say anything that's like a totally wrong lawyer thing please interject and uh, educate me um but what it, was there something consistently that you began to see? And we're obviously working towards, I wanted to talk about police, you know, police reform in the prison abolishment movement, but abolitionist movement. What was the consistencies you saw in the people that you were defending? They're poor. That is what all your clients have in common, Every the, just across the board. Everybody. So anybody represented by a public defender, which is the mo- most Vast, you barely, you barely see private attorneys. And when they do, they have maybe one case, one or a, a few cases. But everybody there is a public defender and they're represented by uh, public defenders. And when I say poor, I mean dirt poor, like little to no income. Like people don't really realize there are people sitting in, in jail dying in Rikers off a few dollars bail, a couple hundred dollars, you know what I mean? Thousands of dollars, like money that would not seem large or ungettable to other people, but people sit and they spend years of their lives in prison. You know, In America right now, we have over 2 million people incarcerated. 400,000 of those people are being held pretrial, haven't been convicted of anything. They're just there because of cash bail, because they're poor. So um, poverty, poverty is the thing that I think it, all of my clients have in common. They're beneath the poverty line. Um, because I wouldn't, most of my, I identify as the broke. 
I identify as the poor, but I would not qualify for my own services. If I was arrested and charged with a crime, they would tell me I, I can't, um, I don't qualify. I have to pay for an attorney. I can't afford an attorney. Lawyers are incredibly expensive. Yeah. So to get a public defender, you have to literally be no income. And that's the majority. Nine out of 10 people in your criminal system are that. So poverty, that, that uh, universally poverty is the thing all your clients have in common. And the offenses that a lot of people are coming in for, I think it's easy, easy for the public to assume that it's like everyone's a murderer, everyone's Jeffrey Dahmer or this serial rapist. And and it's and it's not. It's just wildly not reflective of our system. So 80 percent of cases nationwide, nationwide are misdemeanors, traffic offenses or nonviolent offenses. Most crime, despite the fact that we sensationalize this crime is violent crime. We talk about violent crime, violent crime, violent crime all day. First of all, violent crime is a legal definition. So somebody can be charged and considered a violent criminal or been convicted of a violent crime and no one was harmed. No one was harmed. No weapon was used. That it's just called violent crime. Certain things are just classified as such. So that's one. But two, violent crime is incredibly interpersonal. You know, it's it's, it's very rare. You even have those cases. Most of what I represented over a thousand people. And if I had a dollar for every time I said this is a bullshit case, I'd be a rich broad. Like, so, so, so rich. The, the kind of stupidness. I tell my mommy every time I used to do a thing, after every arraignment, every arraignment shift I work, I call my mommy and I go, you know, you'd be in jail if you were in America. Every time I'd be like, jail for you. I just call my family members up and I'm like, jail, jail for you, jail for you. The first time I realized you could get arrested for cursing people out, I was like, you can get arrested for cursing people out? That is aggravated harassment in the third degree, Candace. If I text you and I cuss you out and you call the police on me in New York City, you are going to jail. <laughs> like, I'm going to jail. Yes, it is a charge. That is what so much of, of interactions are people like roommates. Um, I'm mad at my roommate. I cuss my roommate out. Yes, I can't tell you. Yeah, what is the like craziest like case that you've seen come across your desk where you're like, how is this actually, oh. we're going to take the time to go in front of a judge to even oh. discuss this? Oh, I have so many of them. Let me tell you, the stupid, the one that came to my mind immediately was I, rep oh, this made me mad. I represented a guy who was charged with criminal, with menacing because he ate yogurt with a butter knife in Walgreens. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, like instead of because you don't gotta, you don't gotta, you you ever didn't have a fork or a spoon, oh, so yeah. you use a knife. Yes. Yeah, he I was just traveling with a friend, and she used two knives to make chopsticks because they were out of forks. Exactly. And like <laughs> so, he used a little knife, like a little knife, to eat his yogurt. Menacing, arrested and charged that man with menacing. You ate that menacingly. I am afraid. That's the kind of foolishness. Or I have a guy who was uh, charged with criminal mischief because for banging on his own apartment door because his, he locked his his keys inside uh, um, to and he was banging to like hope his roommate hears it and 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 comes and gets him. Someone calls the police and the police say, well, you don't own this building. You're not the legal custodian of the building because you rent here. So you don't own this door. So banging on this door, criminal mischief. That's that's the kind of stupidness. And I cannot tell you how many like that's the norm like that's the regular kind of thing it's just like why is the criminal law involved here why yeah. is this what's happening or people call they're like um, um, the amount of cases of like mothers and their children just having regular familial mother children disputes and it, the problem is we, we live in a world where you think you know the police will come you see it on tv the police will talk to the kid like hey be nice to your mom and instead so mothers will do that to threaten the kid like oh Come give him a lecture. And what they do is they arrest their children. And now in New York City, we have, we have a thing, automatic orders of protection. So anytime you make a, any allegation, it doesn't have to have any violence, any danger, anything, another party is involved, they automatically set a full order of protection. Now, how that works is most 
most everything in the criminal system is involved with somebody you know, someone you live with, your family mm-hmm. member, your neighbor. Your so, so now, if there's an order of protection, if I call, let's say I had a roommate, and I call the police on my roommate because my roommate pissed me off. We got into an argument, and the police arrest one of us. They set an order of protection. Now my roommate is evicted. Like they can't live here anymore. So now they're homeless. And that's what most of what happens. So, you know, people think you feel like you're doing God's work and you get people out of jail. It's like, I got them out of jail and now they have nowhere to go. Now they're on the street. And that's so often. And I cannot tell you, even if, let me tell you the worst part is, even if it's your place. So let's say, Candace, you let somebody stay in your house. You get, you get a, you, you could come stay with me for a day or whatever. And they make you mad. They call the police on you. They will, you get arrested. Now there's an order of protection. You cannot go back to your own home. I cannot tell you how many clients I have that have lost their own homes and apartments because uh, of another person who doesn't live there, who has no legal right to be there. Or they call the police themselves on this person and they get arrested and out of order of protection and they can't stay in their own home. That is the most common, I think, that I see in this system. And these are not cases that are necessarily then just thrown out once you no. actually get, they are. No, s- they're not thrown out. Not at all. That is And the this norm. doesn't happen just in 24 hours. Someone walks in, they're like held no. for temporarily, immediately put in the, ju- they are, no. this is someone who's then, what is that process? Just so people truly understand also I what makes you. up jail and prison and that this is not just like a quick turnover. Yeah. So the majority of things in the criminal system, first of all, are misdemeanors. They're misdemeanor offenses. Felonies are uh, make up very little of it. Like I said, it's 80% is misdemeanor traffic offenses and lower than that um, crimes. So in New York City, if you get arrested and charged with a crime, you wait. You're probably going to wait somewhere between, let's say, a day, like less than, hopefully less than 24 hours unless, you know, often what happens to if you, you look for medical treatment, people will call the police uh, because they wanted somebody to get taken to the hospital or they needed medical treatment and the police will take them and then wait outside their door and arrest them the minute they get out the doctor and now you're you're stuck in jail longer for your arraignments but generally you should get arraigned within 24 hours once you get arraigned and you have the case assuming they don't send bail on you and send you to rikers because rikers is a pretrial detention center in new york city that's people think of rikers as this infamous jail for bad people but it's pretrial so that's where you go oh. if they set bail on you in new york city for anything so you drove, you drove your car without a license, you know, your license is suspended. Yeah, traffic infractions. They regularly in Queens, as which is where I worked before Brooklyn, they arrest the the taxi drivers, the people that do Ubers at the airport. They charge them with all kinds of traffic infractions all the time and literally give them criminal cases. It's a regular thing. So what happens here is, and when you're charged with a misdemeanor, the prosecutors have 90 days from the time the case starts to get their paperwork that they need in order to pursue um, the charges. So if you get arrested, you can look at it at least 90 days. You have at least three months of having an open criminal case and all the collateral consequences that come with that. And so then you have a court date, they set your arraignments, they set your court date for the next month. Usually nothing happens, but you gotta be there. If you're not there, bench warrants. And what happens is people have jobs or if they don't lose their job automatically, or they have children. And I remind you, these are all really poor people. So they have the money for childcare. They have all these different things. If you miss your court date, bench warrants. But you're looking at at least three months of having a criminal case. And if longer than that, years, people can spend years with open criminal cases. Like the, the case I told you, I mentioned with the, with the butter knife in the Walgreens, that case was open for a year before I got it. Like. Uh-huh. A year, a year, a year of putting that. You have no idea. I got it. I got it thrown out eventually. But the lawyer who had it before me had them in treatment court for like a year. Like just, you know, just absurd, absurd. But those are the kind of things.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. What do you do to then, how, how do you then remain, how do you not just get so upset all the time for your clients and at the system? I mean, I know obviously you have the opportunity now and the platform now to really be able to explain um, the difference between we've heard so much more about police reform and just abolishing the prison system in general. Um, 2020 was a big proponent of that. Yeah. Was that something that was already in your thought process before 2020? Is this something mm-hmm. that you feel like you now have a, a platform where people are actually listening and trying to take that into consideration? What has been the shift that brings us like current day on how people are responding to police reform? You know, uh, yes. As far as where my role in it, this is always what I've been doing, what I've been saying. Anybody who went to law school with me or went to college with me can tell you I was annoying them with this then. Um, it's just, <laughs> a, I, I swear, they, they would tell you they were sick of it <laughs> and now they've gotten on board. Um, What'd you call um, it, the gap? You saw the gap. You yes, yes, I saw the gap. They were, listen, tired of me and I went to a very prosecutor middle law school so all my classmates are prosecutors so they were sick of me. I was the only public <laughs> defender. Sick of it. Nobody was really like, Girl, you ain't tired? No, I'm not. <laughs> but actually, and how I ended up building the platform is pretty organic. My my friends kind of told me uh, I should take the show to Twitter, like complain there. Um, and I was like, no, I'm not interested, whatever. But then Cuomo was driving me crazy, trying to roll back bail reform. And I'm like, all right, I need to I need to talk about this. So I had to change my name on Twitter from Papa Slime to my government name. So Papa Slime? Papa Slime, Candace. I was trying to chill. <laughs> yes, I, I use Twitter strictly to talk about my shows. I just wanted to be Papa Slime in peace. <laughs> right. That's what I used to do on Twitter. Um, and then I changed it. What happened was 
I was, I've always been really involved, but I was a legal observer at all the protests in 2020. I'm obviously a PD representing uh, the cases in criminal court. Um, and I feel like advocacy is required beyond the courtroom. I think people think you're, there's an idea that you can change the system from the inside, and that's just not true. I, not to me. You're, you become a harm reductionist. Like, that's what I do. And I think that's an essential role in court to reduce the harms of this system the way that it's already set up. And if I want to change the system, it requires me to go out and talk to the public. And as far as the, the progress to now, I think... So 2020, in 2020, uh, Black Lives Matter as a liberation movement, not an organization, mm -hmm. uh, became like the, one of arguably the largest civil rights movement in history in the country. Um, we actually had over 550 different locations in the country. People were protesting on any given day for months and months on end. And I think a lot of the time when people talk about the movement and they think of it from 2020 to now, they use that as though it's lost steam or it's not doing well that they use it to encourage people um, or to discourage people from participating in this work. But if you recognize the abolition movement for what it is, which is something that dates back decades and decades and decades and decades and is rooted in the abolition of slavery, you recognize how far we've come that we're even having these conversations on the main stage. Because this has been what you've been studying. The Angela Davis, all of them have been talking about uh, abolition and prison reform and all this long before me. People are going to be talking about it after. So we've actually made incredible strides, I would say. And um, it's about divesting. The the whole general movement, what we want to do is we want to divest from this, this prison system. We recognize, you know, when you hear abolition, I don't expect it to not sound wild, right? If you're if you're raised with a criminal system to believe police, police, uh, police, courts, prosecution, prisons, all these things are necessary, like water. And I think that's how people think of it. Like we have to have that. Every society, that's what you're taught. And you think of justice as synonymous to incarceration, it's gonna sound crazy to you if somebody says, abolish it. Because um, it sounded like that to me too. The first time it was presented to me in college, I'm like, and I was a someone who knew the system was racist. I was like, don't get rid of all the prisons. That's what that's wild. And then my thesis advisor handed me a book, Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. And just the mere um, knowledge that it, it doesn't have to be like this. Are there other places that do it differently? You don't have to have a war with prisons or that prisons are man-made institutions that we didn't always have. We had, we had maybe nine prisons for a vast bulk of this country's history in like California. And then we had a massive prison boom where hundreds of prisons were created in a small period of time. It wasn't always like this. So I think when you realize that, that begins a process of, of coming to a place on that. And as far as abolition overall, it's a vision of tomorrow. You know, we, we recognize they're not going to close. They're not going to close all the prisons today. They're not going to say, close all the prisons, close all the courts, throw it out. It doesn't work like that. But what we're saying is we have a massive prison industrial complex. So we put billions, America puts over $277 billion a year into the prison industrial complex. We have over 2 million people incarcerated. Despite making up only 5% of the world's population, we make up 25% of the world's incarcerated population. So even if you don't want to have a conversation about morality, it doesn't even have to be an appeal to, to our morals or ethics or the fact that the system is just nothing more but legally sanctioned slavery. It's about results. If we're in the game of public safety, if you believe that we have this we have a system we need to be able to respond to crime and stop crime, but we have to talk about the way the system isn't doing that. Because we constantly say, we're not safe, we're not safe, we're not safe. All the media constantly, crime, 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 we're in so much danger. But we spend more money on prisons and policing and we incarcerate more people than anywhere else in the world. So why is this not the safest? Why is this not heaven on earth? Why are the same communities you're calling high crime areas, high crime areas, decades after decades after decades, why are the safest communities not the ones with the highest police presence, but the ones that are the most resourced? So what we're saying is, instead of putting that money into, into just incarcerating people and condemning crime, quote unquote, Let's actually address crime. Let's address the conditions and the environment that is leading to this so we can root it out. And if we put that money, the money that we're putting into 
incarcerating and policing the most under-resourced communities among us, if we put that money into actually addressing their material needs, their education, their healthcare, their housing, um, the different issues that are leading them there, we would eventually do away with the need for this system altogether. So that's the idea. Do you feel that uh, just talking, I feel like mental health and mental illness comes up a lot as well. Yes. And it's it's just shocking to me that there isn't more attention being brought onto that uh, yeah. within this country. Is that something that you see consistently come across your desk? Is that something that absolutely that that I, it just shocks me that there that that's not part a bigger part of the conversation? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not just I want us to think of it to beyond just um 20, so 20 to 30% of the people that are currently incarcerated are dealing with what would be characterized as serious mental health issues. So not just, you know, depression or other just mental health issues in general, but serious, really, really serious. But in general, how our mental wellness has so much to do with how we respond to life, how we do with anything. I tell people this all the time. Like, if I am, when I am, I'm such a better person when I'm financially doing well. Okay, I am a nicer person. I'm going to respond to situations so much better when i get when i see my therapist twice a week when my bills are paid when things are looking good woo, i respond to life well but if i am not if life is going poorly for me if i am am, am uh, i don't have the money to pay my bills if i'm incredibly stressed out i respond to things worse i'm more likely when i'm having a good day candace when my bills are paid and they're talking crazy about me online i'm like whatever i'm blessed yeah. when um, <laughs> when i got bills due when i got stress on me when i don't have help i'm like I might have to curse somebody out. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're far more likely, to, you know, that, that, and I think that plays into it. And we got to really, that's why when I, when I, not only is mental health such a, a heavy part of what the, um, the contributing factors to crime, but it's not even just when you think of a person as incredibly mentally ill. It's also the things that are just, how do they respond to it? What situations are they in? You know, how are how are their depression, their depression, stress, all these different things impacted? So that's why like mental health and poverty and these things are so inextricably woven, right? Because poverty, poverty, it's incredibly expensive to be poor. Like being poor is the most stressed that you'll ever be in life. When you hear mm. about people talking about being down and out, life, even anybody tells you the worst aspects of their life, they're Finance is something, something to do about how life is treating them, how things are going, career, financially. So if you live in communities and societies where most people in your community don't have, they don't have the money for housing to live, to live properly. They don't have the money to eat the way they want, you know, they don't have the money for education. They don't have the money for mental health care. All these things not only compound your situation, but it compounds the way everybody around is dealing with one another, how they interact with one another, how much patience they have for life's problems. And that creates and compounds crime. How... I feel like right now, especially if you turn on the news, there's so many videos of just like crime, 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 crime. See, this is what happens when you defund defund the police. Except the police aren't defunded. <laughs> and then also I'm like, well, we also just went through a global pandemic and there's a lot. Go there's bigger things going. It's not right. like it's just the right. normal couple of years where we're like, right. why is crime up? It's like, And there's inflation. <laughs> They never want to talk about it, Candace. Like, that's something I, I find, as someone who lives in New York City, they're constantly talking about, oh, the homeless, the homeless, the homeless. Well, also, somehow that conversation is always completely divorced from housing. Yeah. I never make sense. They're like, New York City has this major homeless crisis. New York City's average rent is over $4,000. Yeah. It's an unlivable what do you, what place. Do you, yeah, exactly. Like, it's an incredibly expensive place. People are not, you think people want to live on the street? 
Like, you think they're homeless because they want to be homeless? Like, they just want to be a pain in your ass? Yeah. Or do you think they want housing? And they that somehow is always left out of it. I think it's interesting. When they talk about New York City, isn't it funny? New York City, Chicago, L.A., every place that they pinpoint is like, crime, 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 the most expensive cities to live in in the world. Yes. Like, that has so much everything to do yes. with it. And I, and it's specific, specifically, you know, them talking about crime, this crime rise, which is not real in New York City. Now, let's just say it's, it's a fiction that New York Post and Eric Adams and everybody committed to fighting bail reform has, has invested themselves in. But let's say it is true. Let's give it to them all that crime is risen. New York City, literally how many businesses? We shut down for longer than most places. We Businesses closed down. They lifted all of the, the um, moratoriums or the eviction moratoriums. So people immediately, after months and months of not being able to pay rent, people losing their jobs, businesses not getting any help, any surplus, any of that, they immediately started evicting all kinds, thousands of people. And then they're like, we have a homeless crisis. We have a crime crisis. Yeah, why is that? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's yeah. probably why. It was, it was like literally a pandemic, my guy. Yes. And I think also if we could, as a society, just go like, oh, yeah, addiction is real. And maybe if there were actual resources for families or anyone that was struggling with addiction um, and also not putting them in the most like in affluent areas where people then can't rehabilitate themselves through their process and then have to like find a place in the neighborhood that they can't afford to even be in. And then maybe if, you know, it just again, I think that that's what I feel like a lot of people have. Do you feel like the word like the term political fatigue starts to come through a lot where people are like, I don't know how to emotionally handle everything that's being brought to me because I can't fix it right now. Yeah. Do you ever feel that? Me personally, no, but that's also why I think I should be doing the work. Let me say this. I don't think everybody, especially with Black and marginalized people themselves, but I don't think everybody should feel like obligated. And we all have different roles to play, right? Like life is hard. Life is incredibly hard. It's quite literally the hardest thing we'll ever do. Life is hard and it is both long and short, right? Like, (laughs) so I don't think that's everybody's day to day. I think we all have to figure out whether or not we we have a place in the movement, whether you think that's, you know, what we should be doing and how we contribute to that. There there are people that I think like, you know, they think you think because you're a lawyer that that's the main way. But I think educators are incredibly important, like if not the most important to me in terms of what we need to do for, for, uh, shifting the minds and social consciousness of of people but everybody has a different role so i don't think i think if you feel inherently there are a lot of people that just that's not for them like i have friends like i have a friend of mine works in like finance and he'll talk to me about you know these issues and he'll be like but i can't i'm not a protest guy i'm not a this is what's not natural for him and i'm not gonna make him go do something that's not natural for him but he will go write a piece and, and try to explain like oh the economic how financially and economically we could do better things you know to help the community in this way and blah 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 everybody has a different role for me i'm a professional loudmouth. i've never stopped running my mouth since i was born okay my movie can tell you that like if, if i were talking about this i would be talking Okay, so if it comes naturally to me to do this work that I think is important, and I'm like, let me do it. But as far as everybody else, I think people got to give themselves grace. We're just people. I don't think anyone, there's no individual person that is set up or has the ability to just consume constant, you know, just constant sadness, constant misery to put the whole, you know, the whole system on their back. No one of us can do it. We all, this is just trying to figure out what little way can I participate if I can at all. Some people just don't have that benefit. And that's why it's really important on the people that can. You have the time and energy and the privilege in some respects. Because I do look at myself as having a privilege and being able to advocate around these things and and go do that. Like, I, I also, I'm you know, I'm a Black woman. I'm an immigrant. I'm all kinds of stuff. But I'm also, I don't got no children. I live here with a cat. 
You know, there's so many things, there's so many stressors I don't have that makes me more inclined and it's better and easier for me to go run my mouth all day long, you know? And then it's not gonna be easier for somebody else. I just think it's about giving yourself the grace, you know, allowing yourself to feel tired, allowing yourself to complain. Like it's not gonna be a rosy world where you ever you wake up and some days I'm like, wow, I would like to be a 29 year old hot girl and not talk about Rikers this morning, but I gotta talk about it. But you give yourself the moments and I go and I complain to my friends, I go buy art, I go to therapy, I harass my cat. Like, so I think it's about giving yourself grace, you know, letting yourself feel tired when you feel tired, but also just like checking in and be like, well, what's my role in a movement? What can I do? How can I help if at all? What are the moments that have given you hope? Then what are the, what are the hope. good days? What are the cases where, is there a case as a public defender where you've had a moment of just, where you, where you get to feel good? Yes, yes, I will say um, it is often surprisingly not even the cases where you do the best work. Like there are lots of cases where I'm, I'm, I make a miracle happen. And, and let me give you an example. The first case, one of the first, I think this was like my first case case. Uh, it was a DUI that <laughs> it was this old black lady too. So an old black lady, I'm a child to her. She's not taking me seriously. She's not checking for me. She does not consider me a real lawyer. One time she said it to me at a hearing, like maybe be a real lawyer one day. And so I, and You're I like the this, Doogie Howser of lawyers at the time. Just yes. Yeah. And I had this DUI that um, it was transferred to me. So I just started the job and it was transferred to me. A much more senior attorney had had it for maybe like two years. Uh, it was this thick file. And I go to my um, supervisor at the time and I'm like, hey, I actually think I could get this. You don't feel like this is facially insufficient. Like I could get this dismissed. And she was like, align me. You need to learn the worth of the case. Um, you know, this is a, you need to go plead this out, you know, da, 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 da. And I was like, <sighs> and then when I talked to the lady, cause I'm young, she's, um, she just wasn't having it. Every time she would call me and she would tell me what a friend of hers said and blah, blah, mind you, it's like not the, like the Rikers Bar Association is something to be stressed out when friends are consulting about the law. They're like, no, 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 no. Go tell a lawyer that. And I, when I say to you, I spent so much energy trying to figure out how to get this woman's case dismissed, just banish this DUI that was so they were not trying to, and I did it. And I was so, you don't understand the hype I, I, I thought when I, you know, got to court, you know, like to tell this lady, like, so she walks into court and I'm like, I was like, your case was dismissed and sealed. She was like, I'm like, mind you, then I'll have clients where I feel like I did nothing. And the parent, the family will call me like my first favorite client, the first favorite client I ever had, uh, his, his dad called me to tell me basically like his son, he's like, you have no idea, but he wanted to take his life. Like you had this conversation with him and he's blah, 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 and getting him this help. Like that means so much to our family. And I'm like, wow, you know, or I represent this, this kid that he had an old black Grammy and she was, you don't know how happy what she was when she saw me. Uh, representing uh, her her grandson and dealing with that case. So there are definitely moments, lots and lots and lots of moments that I'm like, wow, that was beautiful. Like that was, or I'm glad that, you know, it was me or one time in court this year, actually, I heard an accent, like I heard my own accent and I don't hear the Bahamian accent. I'm going, wait a minute. <laughs> you know what I was like, what was that? I was like, all right. And I'm like, and it wasn't even my case. Like court was about to close. It was super late or whatever. And I'm like, let me call this person. I'm like, give me your mom's number. Let me call your mom. Let me get in contact with them. And then let me arrange this case. Like I'll stay late. Let me arrange this and get them out. And the way that Bahamian woman, like that never happens. Like my island, the Bahamas, the Bahamas is a collection of 700 islands and keys, but my island, Nassau, the capital is only 21 by seven miles long. We're, we're a tiny, we're a tiny people. And we are 
very, Bahamians are in the Bahamas. Like I live in Little Caribbean in Brooklyn, but you have everybody else but us. I'm the only Bahamian here. So it doesn't happen that I run into a, a Bahamian. But when I did, I was able to like help this Bahamian woman, the, the, the joy. So I remember calling my mommy like, like, I don't know how that worked out for her, but it did. And so, yeah, there, there are lots of moments that I feel really good about, uh, good about stuff in there. And the same, the flip side, there are sad ones, but it's usually not what you think it's gonna be. Like I had a, a, this man, his name, he, I don't remember him, but he was from a, his name, but it's, he was from Augusta, Georgia. And I always remember that because he said it real cute like that. I barely did anything for him. And he would be like, at, when he was leaving on his final day, he was like, thank you, miss. And he just dropped this little like compact mirror in my hand and still like skadoodled out of cover. And I was like, my heart. Oh. I, I, I would, I would assume like, that's what I would probably need to keep going or yeah. just like those little moments um of just humanity and connecting with the people that you're representing uh because otherwise it would feel it's it's again it's and I know that's what you signed up for and I know that's what you specifically sought out when you knew that you were going to become a public defender um but to see the bright moments uh yeah I'm sure really really help get through the days it does um okay as far as how can we at this point, if someone's listening right now and they're like, I've only heard about, you know, police reform or defunding the police. Like, where do I start? Like, all of these words seem scary to me and I don't, am like too scared to even dive into it or take a step into it because then it's going to become a thing. And then I and then if I try to talk about this with family or friends and I even ask a question, it's going to be this huge debate. If, if there's anyone listening right now who doesn't even know how to enter the conversation where yeah. is a good place for them to start? There are a bunch of books um, that I can recommend and like people or wherever that you could follow. For me, the first thing I want to say is give yourself grace. Do not expect yourself to immediately become a scholar overnight or take on the the um, the challenge of feeling like you've got to convince all your family members and everybody around you. You know, sometimes, oftentimes, it's about getting our own selves educated, you know what I mean? And trying mm -hmm. to unlearn things and work through ourselves and tangentially giving information out as we can. Because I am a major abolitionist and my mama is not an abolitionist. I just want to know, like, sometimes, especially I feel like we give white people in specific a lot of pressure with the... And I think you should be talking to your families and educating them, whatever, in time when you can. But the idea that, like, you got to go change them all, put them all on your back and it's the whole family and your friends and everything. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. You could be the, you could be a literal scholar and an expert. And every day my mom is like, girl, you know, <laughs> so, so like every day she's like, you think you, and I'm like, no, but I do know mama. Like I, I know you're my mama, but I'm like literally kind of an expert. Like, um, but I would start personally. I always try to advise people to start with like our prisons obsolete. I think um, Angela Davis's book, our prisons obsolete is a great um, starting mark. I think from there, I think you can also look at, uh, there's a thing called 10 demands can't wait um, or the role. If you, if you Google 10 demands, it's the role with the abolition website and they have, so much they literally have um condensed it into a pretty easy to manage thing like oh these are the 10 steps on how what the vision is towards abolition and they have a lot of resources and links there and they can um direct you to the people i would say 10 demands is a good website a good resource to start with but our presence is obsolete there's also a book called um uh we do it till we we do it till we free us by Mariam Kaba. that's a good way to a good place to start there's also a book called becoming abolitionist by derica purnell and there's a book called End of Policing by Alex Vital. I think those are all beautiful places to start. But also, I think that, you know, people underrate it, but Twitter, like Twitter is a, like, there's so many of us that you can get connected, follow and start learning from. And people, you know, people love to downplay it because they don't like the fact that Twitter is as uh, 
powerful as it is, but a lot of what is our news forces, news media, these things are being driven by the conversations and the organizers and the people that are on Twitter, you know, given the information and put it in the, on the ground. So I would say start there, start by reading like Our Prisons Obsolete, get that book and start getting acquainted with it. Our Prisons Obsolete is the, for me, that was my beginning to this journey. And I didn't become an abolitionist overnight and I couldn't tell you what night it happened, but Our Prisons Obsolete, that's my starting. 
in like wall, wallflower type of person because I felt like people would leave me alone. You know, when, <laughs> when you're a locked, you know, when you're a locked, people see you, they analyze you, they have thoughts. I'm a, I can be a polarizing character, right? Because I'm a lot, even if, if, you're, if I'm, people, people either love me or they hate me. There's usually not an in-between because if you like a certain kind of thing that I am, you're going to love it. I'm a lot of that. But if you don't like that kind of thing, you're going to hate it. I'm a lot of that. <laughs> so, um, but I remember, I think when I, I settled into this, this is who I am and I can't do anything about it, was before I became, right before I started my job as a public defender, my first job at a law school, um, I was like, I'm going to be, I really just want people to leave me alone. I don't want nobody to think about me. I don't want to be, I just want to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try to mute myself as much, be my cutest, most reserved version of me. And then one time in training, my coworker Royce was like, oh, I didn't know what room he was supposed to be in, but I just followed the sound of a limey's laughter in from the hallway. And I was like, I was like, damn, this is my quiet version. <laughs> like, and I was like, I was like, oh, you might as well hang it up. <laughs> like, I was like, just go, just go ahead and hang it up. You can't do nothing about it, right? And then um, actually this, being this person is kind of what launched me into um, any kind of Twitter popularity of some kind. It was actually in 2020 before I had, I, I had, I don't even think I had 200 followers in like June of 2020, uh, July. So what happened was I called this lady racist because she was, <laughs> it was this lady, it was this lady that works for my, she actually works for my job. And so she was like, she was being, she was a school segregationist. Like she's like, like, she was like racist in a, like, not like racist, like an academic racist. She was like racist in a like, hi, racism type of way. She's like, she literally doesn't want, want black people and poor people in the schools with her white children. That's her literal position. That was the actual so she, like platform that she would, that yes, was, that's what her soapbox she was standing a on. A literal segregationist. And so when she was being called a racist all throughout the news, because she's a racist, she was like, I can't be a racist. I'm a public defender. And I was like, ooh, 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 ooh. Nope, nope. I was like, ma'am, <laughs> ma'am, don't get the job in it. And so, <laughs> so I, when I called her racist, I do not think there were, you know, it's so funny. People so often create the adversaries they most fear. Some white guy lawyer in New York City who had like 600 followers, which was a lot to my not any followers. Child, he decided he was just so upset about me calling this lady a racist. So he takes like, he takes my, <laughs> I got a call. It was on my birthday too. It was on my on my 27th birthday. I got a call from all these lawyers that I work for like, oh my God, Alimi, like there's this guy like sharing your pictures on Twitter. I'm like, what pictures? What do? That what is the is worst it? call anyone yeah. could get. This day, was, like, let's just be honest. I was like, that's terrifying. Oh, my, my chest. I was like, excuse me, what pictures? I go on Twitter. Like, what year was that? Wait, when, when, when was that? Wait, when, right. when did that go? Hold on. You should see me. I was like, who, who has done what to me? I go on Twitter. And it's like my birthday pictures. I tweeted myself. Like, And this guy's like from like a, a spam account. He's sharing my pictures and he's going, if you want to see somebody who used their body and their race to, uh, to get a job, um, then I'll show you exhibit A. I'm like, so, oh, so you think I'm hot? Thank you. <laughs> I'm like, you know, so that because he did that, he was sharing that all these lawyers. I don't even know. I didn't even know there was a law Twitter. We're like, so because I'm un I'm an unconventional type in the sense that a lot of lawyers play the game as more reserves, more this, you know, they're not familiar. They weren't familiar with a person like me at the time. So for them, that's like terrifying. Like, look at this person, you hear regular pictures of saying it, but I'm like, so I said, so they're all like waiting on my response. And I come through and I'm like, listen, I've always, I've looked like this since I was 13. I've been this person. Like I'm very accustomed to being uh, sized up and hypersexualized and blah. And I just don't care. I don't get the time to do with it. And I thought about it and I'm like, listen, 
I I guarantee you, when I'm an old lady on my deathbed, I'm not gonna be like, oh, I wish I wasn't giving it up like I was in no. my twenties. Like, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm just not gonna do it. I'll be like, damn, I wish I had less cleavage that day. Oh, like, after two kids now, like I am just anytime I see a photo of me when I was in my early twenties, where at the time I was like, oh God, I'm just putting it all out there. Now I'm like, yes, thank yes. God. That is yes. photographic. That is never going away. It is there. Yes. It, it, I looked like that at some point. Yes, exactly. And that's how I feel. I'm like, quite frankly, and I remember, so that kind of is what started my following. And I remember at first I was like, all these law students, everybody loved me. Like, like I'm so, and I remember saying to my bestie, Mark, I was like, I don't care what the big deal is. And he was like, oh, I mean, let me ask you something. Do you know any lawyer when we were in law school? You know any lawyers like you? And I was like, no, you're right. Like, and I still don't. <laughs> like, so I'm like, all right, that make that makes sense. I just, honestly, people, it's easier to be authentic. That's just one. It's just easier. It's just a far more efficient. Um, and also too, like I said, if you're the person where it's easier for you, it's easier for me to just be this and accept the criticism and people, you know, I just don't care. I'm just, I just happen to be the kind of person that just doesn't give a damn. So I rather do that. And that way it makes it easier for black women behind me and other women behind me, not just black women, but any woman that feels like, let me look like this. Let me be whatever. Let me be, because you can't dispute it. And the funny thing is people get used to stuff. It's like, remember when, no, I'm not going to use him as the example because he, he's really acting up. Let me go Rihanna. Uh, but there you remember <laughs> Rihanna first came out and people couldn't even say her name. Like they couldn't say her name right. They would say all these things that act like they don't understand her accent. Now there's no there's nobody alive that doesn't know how to say Rihanna because people adjust and they get it. I have been, two years ago, everybody had so much to say about all my sexy fits and my boobs and, that, and now they're accustomed to it. Now they don't yep. say anything. They just saw me titties out on the weekend and then they saw me in the news on Monday. <laughs> no, no complaint. They get it. They come to respect you. Now they, my name, they learn how to pronounce it. So people will get a, a, accustomed. And by the time that becomes normal, you know, people, it was abnormal. When I first read locks, my mom used to say something, red locks, tattoos, whatever. They don't even see it in the same way they once did. And that normalizes and makes it easier for other women. And it also just makes it easier for me to, to do what I want to do. So that's my... Well, it's also this, you don't have to, there is no like one way to, like, if you're a lawyer, you're a fucking lawyer. Right. You know what I mean? Right. It'll be, and it's always people who tell who people who don't do what you do, telling you what you can't do. Once it was viral because this lady, my headshot, the same one I sent y'all, this, which you say I am a perfectly professional photo. This lady was like, um, and it's too, I checked with my husband and this photo's too busty. You should crop it. Like you should crop it here. And that's what she told me. And it was like a lady who considered herself like a fan of mine too. Like a fan. Like everybody, she thought she was helping me. Um, and I was like, well, I'm not that nice. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't respond to her kindly. <laughs> it went viral. And which is actually how my Nigerian family found me. And I was like, oh Lord, of all the important work that I do, my I'm viral in Nigeria for saying fuck you, lady. <laughs> like <laughs> I also just don't understand how I don't understand the I don't know if it's the American. I am assuming it's truly an American obsession yeah. with just either wanting breasts bigger or smaller. Yeah. yeah. It's like the you Goldilocks know, of boobs in this country. It's I like swear. no one can wear them just right. It is insane to me how many incredible like, you know, very scholared women that I talk to all the time. And how much they have to consider, like, what they're wearing is going to be a yeah. reflection of how people think they're going to perform at their job. And it that's why you got to stop enabling it. You got to stop legitimizing it. You know, people, again, if you if you just stop playing the game, they don't got a game to play with. You know what I mean? You just you just kind of stop. I just stopped dealing with it. I remember, you know, funny enough, I, I, I like I said, I always knew it was going to be a lawyer. So I got my first tattoo on my ankle when I was 15. 
15. Um, and I remember I chose my ankle because I'm all going to be a lawyer. I don't want it to be somewhere you could see, blah, 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 blah. Only to then in 2020 as an attorney get like 10, <laughs> 10 like, just because I'm, I'm sitting down bored. My mom called me actually because there was a, actually an, an example of why you should be authentic. I got uh, tagged in a conversation. There were some law, some law students on Twitter talking about how they wanted a tattoo. And some lawyers came in like, you can't do that. Like you're a lawyer, be professional. And they tagged, they're like, Mr. Lauren is our lawyer with tattoos and on the news. And I was like, you're right. You can't beat that. You can't beat the facts. Uh, <laughs> so I think it's, it's important to just, just do it, you know? And I, and I also think there's a beauty in yourself, in a comfort you feel in yourself, you know, when you, when you realize that like, you did it all, like it's one thing to be, you know, successful or accomplish the things you want to do, but it's another thing to do it on your own terms and to be like, yeah, like I really did that. I did yeah. that. I like, you know, I said to myself, like some lady actually told me on the weekend, I was like, commented on on my Instagram, like, miss, we don't want to see all your goodies. We here for political things. I was like, I don't care what you want to see. You can, you can yeah. get the F out of here. And, and then I was on Dawn Oliver that night. And I was like, say, and what? And what? Tell me again. You know, like, I can do both. Yeah, I yes, can be we both. Have to, yes. We have to allow ourselves to be multidimensional people or they'll keep slicing and dicing us up. And something I recognized a long time ago is people, when they meet people or they see people, they come up with an idea of you. They just do. They come up with mm -hmm. a box of perception of you and they put you in it and they will distort everything. You No matter what you show them or give them about yourself, they will keep distorting it to fit that lens. So you just got to dismiss it. Like people tell me, all there's so many things people think about me that I'm just like, I'm a nerd, like a whole, you see literally nothing but anime and stuff behind here, but they busy hypersexualizing me all day like I'm a city girl, then at the same time, they're talking about me like I'm a radical maniac. I'm just like, child, I guess it's all true. Whatever, I'm in my house, <laughs> kicking it. <laughs> I also love that you just get like, the most the craziest phone calls or like text messages being like, hey, there's pictures of you on the Internet. And then it's like this life changing occurrence. I, actually, the start yes. of something new. Hey, by the way, uh, you're on John Oliver tonight. And you just like so all the amazing uh, like life changing moments that come through your phone. Uh, I just cannot wait uh, to see what text you get next, um, which means you well, that was, I want you to know that's how I felt about this one. When I got this email, just so you know, Gannis, when I got this email <laughs> on my friend's phone, I was like, um, excuse me. I like major talks. Everybody, literally, my meeting before this, I was like, I don't know if you all know, and I do know y'all know because I know y'all watch the Vampire Diaries because oh we all God. did. Like, yes, and I'm not gonna lie. I want you to know, I'm not gonna let you leave here before I ask you what I want to ask you. About oh, absolutely. Allow me. Yes. Let's go. What you want to know? Okay. First of all, I don't. I don't know why I am. I seem to be the only person in this fandom at that. Like, I am upset. <laughs> Why is nobody but me shit Tyler and Caroline? Why am I the only one that's upset about that? I feel so upset. I'm, listen, oh, I'm so mad. I've been mad for years, <laughs> Caroline. That's like hilarious. Ooh, I'm so I'm so tight. I'm like, why? Like, you know what I don't like? It's y'all's fault because I think y'all as actors did too. I think y'all did a better job than they wanted y'all to do. Like, clearly they didn't decide that that was Endgame, but y'all acted the hell out of that. Endgame because I was invested. Okay, I was like, <laughs> I was like, I believe y'all. This is and this is everything, and then suddenly they moving y'all on. I was like, we're never gonna get back to this. Um, that's hilarious. I know. I. I, it is funny by the end of it, the running joke was that literally Caroline Forbes was had like basically had a romantic love interest with almost with every single character. On yes. the show. So did. To the point where like there was like a when the babies came, it was like, wait, which one can be the father? Because it has to be someone new. And I mean, it was just it was very funny. Um, yes. No, uh, the yeah, I very rarely get asked about the Tyler and Caroline shipping which is very it's always caroline and klaus or caroline and stefan that's what and, i and, guess and, and, and it doesn't make sense to me because i'm like <laughs> i'm like you know bless their heart but caroline and stefan 
child. <laughs> I was oh like, I don't know where you I was like, who who's a part of this? I was like, who do I need to write a letter to? Like, why? What do they got? When they when they'll say when they murks, I was the only person I was like, murking, take him out the game, finish it. <laughs> like, yes. I was like, fine. And then they didn't give my girl, I'm like, all right, okay, fine. Maybe y'all they got the originals, they're gonna give my girl the calls. Then they then they, they can't do another stuff. I was like, well, you might as well give me what I wanted. <laughs> and, that was, and that was my end game. But no, I was I was alone in that and I've been sick about it. And you can't I cannot tell you how happy I am that I get to tell you direct like, oh, this is uh, thank you. I've I've been I've been tight. Well, who's your favorite? What did you what did you want to happen? Oh man. And no, I was just happy that I had a job. I mean, it was not always bad. very fun. And like, it was fun that, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world to be like, okay, we've been making out for a season. Who do I get to make out with next? You know, no, it's like true. very, none of it's very romantic. It's, you know, you're making out in a sweaty warehouse with like a hundred crew people just staring at you waiting for their lunch. But <laughs> other than that, um, no, I honestly was just thrilled to always have a job and, and realized this last weekend, we were like on a panel at a Comic-Con and in Europe and uh, someone had asked about like death, like the craziest death on the show. And there was a whole group of us there and realized that everyone on the stage had been a character that died, even like, you know, very big lead characters. Yeah. But I literally just did an episode of Legacies earlier this year where like I was one of the last, the last one standing of them all. So I might not have gotten like a relationship out of the end of it, but But you got a life. I I got a life. (laughs) You got a life. In years. Yeah, no, I no, Caroline lie. was a very surprisingly, I think she's probably one of, if not the best developed cat. I mean, it probably is the best, which is why they, she's still around because she's surprising when the show starts off. You think you're going to hate her. <laughs> like, you're like, oh, I hate this annoying I got gal. that a lot. Yeah, I got yeah. that a lot. Yep. And then somehow it's like, oh, I'm fully, I love me some Caroline. I'm so here for it. I'm like, why are they doing my gal like this? Oh, I love it. I'm like, yes. I mean, I went from like, I hate Caroline to like, yes, it makes sense why all the men like, yes, give her clouds, <laughs> give her everybody. And I like them. And I like them all because, listen, I, I will remain I on Team so Tyler until I die. But you would, Klaus, I was, I, I can't lie. They, I can't lie. <laughs> I, as, a, as a Tyler fandom for you and Tyler, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to lie. Klaus really, I was like, I see it. I see the Klaus and Caroline. That I do is get so- it. Funny. The funny thing is, is like I adored working with Joseph Morgan. I know that like he enjoyed working with me, but there was no like it, the only reason that the writers even kept writing that storyline was because of we Twitter, liked it. because yes. of Twitter at the time. There wasn't even Instagram that existed at the time. And it would just become this trending thing. And they were like, well, no, 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 we're not writing that. But we'll give them one more scene because we have other plans. Stop doing your job so good. Stop <laughs> doing it so good. Stop <laughs> chemistrying it up. Listen, the scene in the in the, in the woods. Listen. <laughs> I was in my house like, you know what? They really did that because I, I was, I wanted to hate Klaus because you know what I mean? I wanted to hate him so bad. First of all, that man is talented. That character is uh, yeah, no, he's done fantastic. in a way that is yeah. outrageous because when I said he was so mad, he came in there messaging up for Tyler. Like I was hot. I was hot. I was like, how did you tell? Oh, I was mad. I was like, they're going to take a main love interest. They're just going to act like it never happened. They're going to make him a, the servant to Klaus and he's going to steal his girl. Oh, I'm so mad. But then y'all didn't want to. I was like, Okay. Well, I, I that it. that scene in the forest where it's basically like they hook up for the first time, and yes. um, for anyone that hasn't seen it, and funny enough, um, go just going back to making sure that there's like digital proof of like how how things were in the youth as far as like f- femininity and like body and sexuality. Um, we got there, and he was like Joseph was supposed to take a shirt off that day too, and he was just like, "I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it. I don't like don't need it," and, which is completely within his yes. rights. 
But I just, I knew what the people wanted. They wanted some steam. They wanted, you know, I'm a TV watcher. Yes. I want to be able to envision myself in those situations. And I was like, don't worry, guys. I will take one for the team and I'll take my shirt off. And I'll wear the little bra. So you're welcome. Someone got it. Listen, I I took one for the team and and took my shirt off for a steamy against a bark tree. You know, yes. just love making sessions. A timeless yes. contribution <laughs> that we all appreciate. It might have been the nail in my boy Tyler's casket, and I hate that. <laughs> and then when they and when they took my boy out the game and, and at the end and didn't even give him no fanfare. Oh, I was mad. Oh, I was yo, I was so mad when they told Caroline. She just was like, I was like, oh, so you're just gonna act like that wasn't the love of your life? We're just gonna be like this. We're just gonna be like this. You're just not gonna address it, like. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, you need to moderate one of our uh, like one of our panels at some Comic-Con in the world. I want you to know if that ever in any way happens. Y'all will not be able to tell me nothing. Don't call me. (laughs) Nobody call me a lie. Me call me the lawyer formerly knew. (laughs) Yes, I would be too hyped. (laughs) Well, a me. I love to do a little cool down at the end of uh, every podcast just to get to know our guests just a little bit better right before we say goodbye to them. I have five questions for you that I ask everyone. Yes, I'm ready. So one is going to be just very simple. What's something you like? Plants. Plants? Love me some plants. Oh. Yeah, I'm a plant. I got like 50 plants in here. Plant <gasps> mama. Yes. And I, I oh Gosh, that's what I want to be. I want to be you, a plant person so bad. But I, I was surprised I became one. I became one in the pandemic. It was nothing. Let me just say this. In the pandemic, there was nothing open but the plant store in my neighborhood. The plant store, the tattoo shop. And that's it. So I got like 15 tattoos, 50 plants. <laughs> I, I swear I did. My mom, I swear I did. My mommy will call me. I would buy my friends. Well, it was ridiculous. Like I've spent thousands of dollars. Of, I'm not joking. Like, oh, no, I, I believe you. You can. Yep. But plants. And then like, even look, I have like, I have plants tattooed Do you have a plant tattoo? That was going to be my next question. That's hilarious. Look, rose, plants, tattoo. When my mom called me, my, my niece was like, oh, I want a tattoo. And my mommy was like, no, no, you can't get a tattoo and be a professional. She was like, oh, Abby has one. So my mommy calls me and my, um, to get the important. She was like, oh, Abby was serious about it. She thought about it. My niece calls me and goes, oh, Abby, how come you got um, that tattoo? I was like, oh, I thought it would be wavy. <laughs> I love it. Plants. All right. Okay. What's something that you know? Tree kangaroos are, I love me some tree kangaroos. They're endangered and they're in the, the trees of Papua New Guinea. They develop, they have like little thicker feet so they can walk up on the trees. And they're like 11 different species of tree kangaroos and they spend like 64% of their lives sleeping. And I love that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Tree kangaroos. Okay. Yes. That's, I'm going to do a very big Google deep dive after And did this. you know how the average sloth dies? No. The average sloth. <laughs> sloths be in the Heart trees. Like, <laughs> they're so silly. You know, sloths be in the trees with their long arms, so they swing from tree to tree. They mistake their own arm for a tree branch <gasps> and fall out the tree. Silly, wow. silly babies. Mm-hmm. They are silly. Sloths are very. They've also like, like, been such a trending animal of like the past couple of years. Sloths so have been very it. hot. Yes, retired. They we resonate. Yes. They resonate with our spirit. <laughs> Yes. Okay. So what's something that you hate? Child, so many things. Um, let's see. What do I hate off the top of my dome? Um, Besides the ending of Caroline and Tyler's relationship. Child. Um, <laughs> hate, hate. You know what's crazy? I, I complain all day. You would think I would have so many, so many things off the top of the dome. Um, Goku, he's a deadbeat. Um, you said I have Vegeta. <laughs> like, I have Vegeta and them and Piccolo and Bulma and Yamcha and everybody else and Frieza, but uh, Goku's a deadbeat and he does not deserve any of the praise. So I'm going to go choose him. And the notebook. I love it. I hate the movie The Notebook. Unpopular. You hate the movie The Notebook? 
unpopular opinions. <laughs> Why? What, was there like um, one stand, one thing that stands out from it that you're like the whole thing is nothing. The whole thing. I'm like, what about this man choosing to give his life, his whole life, to this gal who's barely interested in him for half the film? Why, why, why don't we encourage him to get therapy? What about this? Is, you know, you sometimes, like me and my friend have been recently doing this thing where we realize we're in a toxic person. You don't realize it because as a woman in this scenario, I'm like, oh, you know, I, I understand me. I don't intimidate me. I get me in my main focus. You don't even realize it's you. She don't like him like that. He yeah. is not like, we watched the movie from his like, oh, he love her and as women, we like it because it's nice to see yourself be the number one main priority of a man. But if we actually thought about his feelings, this is a sad film. <laughs> it's a sad ass movie. Our guy needed some therapy. He needed some self-confidence. He needed another girl. He needed to love himself. It's a rough movie. I would love to see like a remake of that, but with the like with that turn in it. That would Listen, be amazing. I would, I would love it. But I'm, then they I'm end up at the same retirement home and then he just gets to be like, let me tell you. Like I, I I'm, life? yes, how I lived my life, and Listen, I and I chose yes. That would be beautiful. That would be great. All right, we're gonna work on it. We're gonna work on it. Um, and then something that you love. My cat Raheem is my baby. How old is yes. he? He is three. Aww. He is a big tuxedo main coon. I love him. He was he um he used to be he used to be uh, the terror of the streets. He used to run around messing cats up. Like no, he really didn't play. Like Raheem is a. Raheem is a former G. So <laughs> how I got Raheem actually was I, my cat had passed and one of my Twitter followers sent me uh, a, an ad to a cat in Bushwick Cats, a place that rescues cats in Bushwick, um, Brooklyn. And I was like, I do not want a new cat. Like, but then I saw him and let me just say this to you. My cat looked crazy. Cat is like effing crazy. My, the only reason I got him was because I was like, nobody is taking this cat in. First of all, I'm gonna show you, when I show you what he looked like, but this is what the ad said. They said he invaded a feral cat colony, not a cat colony. He invaded a colony full of feral cats and beat the brakes off them, beat up every cat so that he could get their food. So they had to trap him. They literally said we had to trap an interloper in our midst. They trapped him so because he was stealing all the food from other cats and they sent him away to a place for bad feral cats. Turns out he's not feral. He's just hungry and he liked to fight. Um, <laughs> so they had him. He had FIV. He was fighting, looking crazy. I'm going to show him to you right now, Hannah, because if you see what he looked like, he is handsome and beautiful now. But child, and my mommy was like, you cannot get that Ted Bundy looking cat. You cannot get him. Like, and I was like, let me show this. And he just needed yeah. to be loved and get some good meals. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Look crazy. Oh, oh. Like, <laughs> like, he looks absolutely nuts. And I brought him in in the minute I was like, well, I'm going to foster him. I swear to you, Raheem walked in the house. He like, slumped up. He's real big. And he like, walks around the house. He goes and eats his food. And he's like, this is nice. This is nice. This is a good gig. Jumps in the bed. He's like, we homies, we friends. And I love you. I'm staying here. I'm like, what do you want to be named? I call him Raheem. He responded immediately like, you got that right. Uh-huh. Oh that's my, my baby. Goodness. Yes. Love him. I love that. Okay. And then one quirky fact about you. You know, so many things about me are so like, ridiculous on its on its face that it's so hard to choose. I'm probably gonna choose um sometimes I be like anytime I, I can't I lose my bearing, which is often, I'm like, oh, what would an alimey do if I were, you know what I mean? Where would an alimey put that? What would an alimey do like like a species? And sometimes one time in court or in, in the office, I'm like like for forget my bearings while I'm walking around my work office. I think no one's there and I'm just in the hallway and I'm like, where would an alimey go? I look up and hear my colleagues like <laughs> like, like, like that. I think that's the most ridiculous thing. I walk, I walk around the streets like, 
And the lion is supposed to be where now? And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. That's that's the one. I love that though. I love it's like this this like higher version of yourself that is like, yeah. That yes, I. It really, lets me know I understand really like me when that. I get the answer right. Like when I be like, if I'm lost something, I'd be like, where would the lion put her keys? And I figure out where in the lion would put her keys. I really love that. I call it in in therapy right now. I'm like, there is this logical part of my brain and this is what the logical part says. So I can talk myself out of it. But I I like this like kind of call to your higher self that you can hear and listen to and kind of guide you. That's fantastic. Well, Eliami, thank you so much for joining me today. And it's such a pleasure to meet you. Um, Thank you. This was amazing. This was so fun. This has been a Superboom podcast, hosted by me, Candace King, produced by Melissa D. Mons and Diamond Imprint Productions, post-production sound by Chris Henry, and advertisement partnerships with ACAST. 